Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Coffee and Circuses. I have a very special guest joining me this week, none other than my former PhD supervisor, Luc Levan, who is a lecturer in archaeology at the University of Kent and the editor of the Late Antique Archaeology series. Luke talks about his forthcoming Totenschlager, which is German for a book so large that it would kill you if it landed on top of you, which discusses public space in the late antique world all the way from Gloucester to Petra. We also chat about what got him into archaeology and the late antique period in particular, including what impact reading Gibbon's Decline and Fall at the age of 12 had on him. His experience is researching at different institutions in a variety of countries, including Belgium, Germany, Turkey and France, and the current state of late antique studies, particularly the sometimes difficult relationship between textual scholars and archaeologists. He also discusses why he was drawn to St. Ambrose, how his estimation of Constantine I has gone up, but how his opinion of Justinian has gone down. So, as always, thanks for joining me, and on to the show. is the centre of the universe, the most beautiful place in the world, mm-hmm. and he wants to go on holiday there, so uh, that's why we're doing it. Yeah. It does produce very famous cheese. Yes, it does, yeah, yeah, which we're going to eat. Mm-hmm. Okay. How long are you going for? Uh, a week. A week, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Are you going completely sans any work, or are you going to be filling your bag with... <laughs> like... well, if I don't do a grant proposal then, I'm never going to get one done, so uh... Uh, yeah. Um, I think it's in everybody's interest, and especially yours, that I do some work. <laughs> no rest for the wicked, eh? No, uh, no. So, at the moment, though, the big thing that you're focused on is the book, which is oh. just at the finish line. But <laughs> 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 uh, forgetting publication or whatever at the moment, So, but just more broadly, okay, the book is is ginormous when it eventually does appear. It is how How long is it now? 1.3 million words. Yeah. So I've beaten Gibbon by about 200,000. So wait, your, your book is actually going to be longer than Decline yeah, of Fall. Yeah, I've beaten God by about um, almost double. Um, you mean the Bible? Yeah. Yeah. Um, God plus the Lord of the Rings. Well, there you go. It's the length it is. I've beaten that, so uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. Um, yeah, I won't be. I doubt I'll be writing any more eighteen-year books um, uh, in my lifetime. So, so what's the book on to begin with? The book is "Public Space in the Late Antique City." Colon, Fora Agarai, streets, shops, uh, etc. Um, so that's uh, markets. Yeah. So it's two volumes. And the first is a thematic, reasonable 350,000 word uh, monograph, which a normal person would like to read. And the second volume is a rather larger, uh, detailed uh, uh, investigation of all of the sites, which only good scholars would want to read. (laughs) So, I mean, when you say the sites, you mean... Everywhere in late, like the late well, antique world, five hundred sites are covered, uh, meaning not individual places. Within those sites, there are uh, num- sometimes many structures covered. 
So, yeah, it's a what you'd call an analytical summary, meaning that for each of those buildings there is a description, but it's not simply copying out what some guy has read, written in their report or their, um, you know, synthesis of a site. It's uh, my description of the, the structure from my reading of photographs and of the, their report so I've taken things to bits and stuck them back together again in a standardised way so I try and date each site according to my criteria I don't just say oh this is 5th century because I read it in the book um, I try and have a consistent criteria for, for what, what I'm, the way I'm reasoning basically and that's taken a long time and that stretches from what's the furthest, <coughs> shall we say, northwesterly? Do you get what's the oh. furthest to, up? Do you get as far as Hadrian's Wall? I mean, I know there are sites in there. From Gloucester's in there. Um, Caistor by Norwich is in there. So we get halfway up through Britain, and then if we go eastly, what's the furthest east that you get? Well, Petra's in there. Petra. Uh, Sala in uh, Morocco is in there, and um, well. We have a very active bishop in the Black Sea called Asterius of Amazia. He's in there. So that gives you some idea of the range. The most lit's about the East Mediterranean, Eastern and Central Mediterranean. So yeah, yeah. Um, Spain's in there because Spanish archaeologists write interesting things and dig good sites. Mm. But not a huge amount happens in Spain, uh, even less. Uh, from Gaul, even though there is text for Gaul, so you know it varies depending where the information is. Uh, where is my heart? My heart's probably uh, flips between Asia Minor and the Levant. That's where most things are really happening, and the evidence is really good. Is that because of the name connection or yeah? the Levant? No, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. That's just where the decent late antique archaeology is, you might say. So shame we can't get to it. Yeah. So you say this eighteen years in the, in the making? Because did this stem out of your thesis? No, or this is postdoctoral work. Postdoctoral work. Because your thesis was on provincial pre- capitals, provincial capitals, late antiquity. Right. So law courts, praetoria, things like that. So it was eighteen years ago. You decided to. St- start work on this or did has it been like an amalgamation of just as times progress where you've done different things been on different postdocs because postdoc wise you've been what to turkey to belgium to paris uh you've been around a lot (laughs) i have yeah yeah i mean the idea of the postdoc was that my thesis would be vastly improved by further research so i would publish a better thesis by doing a few years of postdoctoral work I was encouraged to do something new uh, by Averill Cameron, not simply extend my thesis. And that was uh, a double-edged piece of advice. Uh, Yes, I did more research, but actually I never got around to publishing my thesis. I did lots of new research. But if you do lots of new research at postdoctoral level, you kind of look back at your thesis and think, what I'm doing now is much better so it's easier to carry on with the postdoctoral research at a higher quality than it is to go back uh, to your poorly conceived thesis uh, proposal. So I do intend to publish my provincial capitals with the benefit of all these years of postdoctoral research, but basically it took me away from that to pastures new. So I had to do, first of all, city councils, uh, chambers in late antiquity, so what happens to the town hall, 
And then I did um, For Agarai, which was where I really hit on some good information. And then I went on to do Streets and bits and pieces of Sagalassos. Um, uh, Leuven, so yeah, and uh, I've since that time I've also gone into shops and markets, so um, yeah, I'm trying to get through all of late antique secular public space. So when I went to Paris, what I was supposed to be doing for my Marie Curie was um, uh, intercommunal space theatres and uh, bigger bath buildings, latrines, schools, and libraries in late antiquity, but I actually ended up expanding the dating uh, gazetteer of my uh, existing public space book. So that sounds boring, doesn't it? (laughs) And believe me, it was. (laughs) It was really boring. But everybody will say when it's published that it's really useful, especially if it gets online. What's the German word that you've mentioned before for a book that falls off the shelf Ah, and kills you? Totenschlager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) This is what people like Werner Eck or uh, Rudolf Hench, they produce these books which uh, are a danger to life. Um, And it has been known... In parts of Germany, in Bonn, there was an earthquake, and uh, um, my friend Hansgard Helen Kemper was sitting at his desk, and a variety of Totenschlagen fell from the, the, the shelves. He was in danger. So, anyway, this is what my book can do for you it can kill you. <laughs> is that going in the introduction? Or? <laughs> well. <laughs> Uh, there may be three volumes of it, so I may have three chances. Uh, so, having moved between all those various uh, institutions, because, as I say, you've been to Paris, you've been to Turkey, you've been to Belgium, Germany as well? Yeah, Germany yeah, as well. Humboldt, um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, overall for you, though, going through all those, because that's Rome PhD. for an extended period, yeah. yeah. What did you find have been some of the marked differences. Uh, uh, I'm sure you could say, say a lot about this, but you've obviously you've been through a variety of different institutions in different countries. So how have you... I, I, wanted to, I, I thought I was being broadened by it. This was the great European dream that I was being um, cosmopolitan in a sense. Well, not cosmopolitan, but really a world citizen of the kind Mrs May disapproves of. Um, and that I would bring the best of everything. I would come back to England and I would be on a different, higher level than most of the academics around me, if I may be so bold. Um, I would be enlightened by travel. Um, and yes, um, Brexit and has reminded us that things are rather more complicated. And in fact, what you find is a series of national cultures who are, that are overconfident and that do things their own way. And that there is very little space for um, those who want to knit that together or cross over. Uh, and our friend up in Sheffield, there, Julia Hillen, is one of those who's come over from Germany and has tried to combine both things. But I think what you find is that when it's pulled in one direction or the other, it's like coming back from war. People don't want to know your stories. They want to do things the British way or the Bulgarian way or the Turkish way, or the... And that's terribly disappointing, initially. Um, my book is trying to reach quite a lot of people in Europe. Uh, it's not simply a Tempus, my rant about the late Roman Empire uh, book. It's supposed to be something which is uh, going to be respected to a degree in Germany and France and Italy. 
Um, so, yeah. Um, I mean, I've got loads of experiences I could tell you. I've been told off by senior professors in many different cultures. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it doesn't surprise me, really. (laughs) Noel Duval, for one, just because I tried to organise a blooming seminar in Paris. Oh, yeah. I don't know if he listens to the podcast. No, he's dead. Oh, he He may be listening. I think he was, yeah. I'll have to deal with Noel Duval as well as St. Peter when I get up there. (laughs) So... Take me back to begin with, or take me back to where it all begins for you. Because, first of all, I mean, how did you get into to archaeology partly? And also, how did you end up focusing on, on late antique archaeology? Because late antique archaeology, which we go on to speak about more in depth in a bit, is obviously a subject that is maybe not in its infancy, infancy, but would you no, say it's, it's adolescence? It's still... It's, it's late adolescence. Late now, adolescence. So why why, why archaeology and then the jump from archaeology... Right. Well, not the jump from archaeology, but focusing in on particularly late antique archaeology. Well, my mum and dad took me to ancient sites that they happened to find on their way. It was part of... There's an interesting church or there's a stone circle. It was usually some... It was my mum, really. It was some sort of romantic... You know, uh, like the eco-warriors of today, when they go for their spiritual retreat, they're trying to hug stones. But my mum felt there was something uh, spiritual to a degree in a certain type of ancient monument. Now, they did, did not include industrial archaeology, for example. And then I got into the Romans. There was, I think it was initially um, the Asterix cartoons available in the Daily Telegraph colour supplement in the barbers I was going to about age nine, and I started reading. Then I started buying the ast- the books, but also you never asked for a haircut, like obliques or anything. Uh, uh, well, the haircuts, yeah, they gave some, <laughs> you wouldn't hardly call it a haircut. It was a lady with a, a clipper and a comb, I think. Uh, anyway, I um, read those, and also my mum had some books on the Romans because she'd uh, done her year in France as a, f- a French assistante at vaison la romaine in Provence in the early 60s, and she'd been to Arles, she'd been to Orange, where she'd seen in Moliere or some ancient, and some ancient plays as well in the theatre. And so we had these books, and then my grandfather, when he died, I inherited a number of books from him about archaeology, because he was interested in archaeology. Now, I didn't see much of my grandfather lived down in Warwickshire. Um, but in the 70s, he'd sponsored a, an excavation, or sponsored, he'd allowed an excavation on his land of some medieval house platforms. And so he'd gone along to amateur societies and so on. And he wasn't a regular part of my life. We lived up in Manchester with my dad's side. Um, but when these books arrived, I started to get interested um, in the history section in the library, and which wasn't very good, but there was a notably there was a book on Byzantium, um, which was a sort of retelling of all of the stories of Theodora or Irene or Bilisarius, and it kind of appealed to me. I liked the idea of um, the Roman Empire carrying on, and I was also desperate for a way out of Middle Earth because from about <laughs> from about seven, thanks to the BBC adaptation, I was kind of sucked in. By that, and it was sapping all of my imagination. I DVD, what was it called? Dungeons and Dragons, D and D. I D and D'd myself to death, and I kind of saw in the books Alexander the Great or Peter Connolly's book on the Roman army that it was like Middle Earth, except it was somehow not pointless. It was somehow true. 
Well, that's what I thought. Um, I'm surprised you didn't. I guess, was it just the fact that the books that you had were Roman books? Because I guess isn't the natural tendency to go from Middle Earth to maybe more Anglo-Saxon? It is, isn't it? But I didn't. I like the Romans. I wanted to go and see Hadrian's War. My dad bought me a, a, a Roman Britain book, a Reader's Digest Roman Britain Companion, but I think Graham Webster or something like that. And I, that was what really sparked my imagination. I wanted to buy all the Ordnance Survey maps and visit all of these Roman forts. And I remember beating my history teacher in the first year at secondary school. Who was obs- He thought that, that our town Bury was Roman in foundation. And it wasn't at all, it had just been completely made up. And I was went to the Berry Library and I, I, I was able to show there was no such uh, uh, thought there at all. Um, I, I, you would see me taking my dad's OS maps and drawing lines across them because all Roman roads were straight and we could find some Roman roads. And, and then my dad would take me to these Roman forts and eventually to Hadrian's Wall. Uh, at first it was almost fatal to me because I had appendicitis and uh, we didn't realise and... Um, the day of the trip to Hadrian's Wall, my birthday trip, I came downstairs and I asked me dad, so dad, are we going to Hadrian's Wall then? I said, oh, looking at the weather, I don't think so. I said, take me to the doctor then. And I was operated that night with a very inflamed appendix. Wow. Um, yeah, so, um, so we did eventually go to Hadrian's Wall and I thought it was great. And then, yeah, the, my interest developed and grew until... I went into things like King Arthur. That was a sort of fascination. Um, and Leslie Alcock and all those books that were yeah. available at the time. Tintagel visited Tintagel. And all of a sudden, then puberty struck. And I was interested in, in, in finding uh, um, friends and uh, being you know, respectable. And <laughs> bought a, a ski jacket. And having I wanted to have a girlfriend. And the Roma books kind of gathered dust. <laughs> until it came to university when I seemed to be... I was, I was on a on a fast track to do economics it looked like university or I realised I didn't want to do that I wanted to do something on the Romans so I did ancient history and archaeology no, uh, ancient history and literature A level and then I put down Durham as my choice, you know, for first choice to, to go to university and then my interest grew basically but I had this sort of hiatus in the middle when I didn't do what I should have been doing and probably it set me back a long way because I could have learned Latin at that stage or even started Greek um, but I, I was trying to be normal so I was a teenager yeah maybe you're setting yourself a bit too high a standard there <laughs> yeah so I had five years of being normal when when all of these books that I'd bought gathered dust and yeah yeah um, so late antiquity well that's um yeah, fascination with the fall of Rome and is there any continuity with the modern world? And it just seemed far more exciting. Alexander was always winning. Caesar was obviously a nasty guy. Whereas in late antiquity, people were a kind of commonwealth of uh, where they were, they were defending themselves, weren't they? They were trying to to keep the bad guys out. And when I was twelve. My uh, my godmother has got a lot to ask answer for because she used to buy me a lot of uh, ancient books, uh, and um, she was always been very supportive. She lent me Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, the abridged edition, mm. which then I, I I read age twelve, kind of thirteen pages a day until I got through it, um, and so I I, I, I was sort of like Gibbon himself, fascinated by 
this story of, well, when does it end then? When's the end of the Roman Empire? Does it survive anywhere? Is Venice the Roman Empire? Or are the Papal States the Roman Empire? Is there a part of Wales or part of the Cantabrian mountains where there's still a village holding out? You know, uh, that was kind of fascination for me. Do you think Gibbon still holds up after all these years? I mean, obviously ideas that are no, no. no longer valid, but I mean, as a readable book, I mean, it still it still tends to turn up on a lot of uh, hundred books you should read in your life lists. No, it's not. It's a piece of uh, propaganda, enlightenment propaganda, basically. I mean, nobody had stuck the sources together. So sometimes when you're on Google Books uh, looking for that reference, it does come up with Gibbon, and, and the reference is a good one. So, you know, that was a massive achievement. But, um, yeah, he was writing a book for his time, and uh, the message of Gibbon would... It's not me, I'm not an expert on Gibbon, but somebody said... Gibbon and his mates thought that the main threat to 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 society in the 18th century was 18th century religion, so you know sort of Jansenism and things like that. Well, just round the corner was a bloodbath, uh, in which it was clear that it was social tensions between the haves and the have-nots, or the bourgeois and their uh, their nobles that ripped society apart. It wasn't somebody perambulating around their own type of monument. You know, as uh, Louis XIV said, or was it Louis says, uh, what not, uh, uh, God is forgiven, forbidden to do miracles in this place. You know, there was a sort of um, broad and complex uh, series of attitudes to religion in the 18th century. And really, uh, Gibbon was out there trying to refound society along uh, lines more favourable to him and his mates. Um, who were well-heeled chaps who uh, didn't have really that many problems in the world. Um, um, they didn't go hungry, um, and a lot of people did at that time. Uh, so anyway, that's how I see it in did, a nutshell. Did you ever think when you were reading Gibbon that one day you'd write a book that was even longer than all of his volumes combined? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I sucked up Gibbon uncritically. You know, I remember coming into my mum's room... Uh, repeating Gibbon's views on the Jews, for example, uh, which are, you know, what we would regard as anti-Semitic. But because I was a 12-year-old boy and what was written in books was true, I was very impressed by his theories at that time. Uh, I could see, yeah, that obviously the riots of Alexandria, what they do, how they had an impact on the development of the Jews in the Roman Empire. And it's basically, yeah, it was anti-Semitism to a degree, which is regrettable. Uh, Voltaire has it, um, Gibbon has it to a degree, but um, yeah, we have to move on from Gibbon and we have to recognise where we are now and where he was in this time. I mean, in our, we're going to get condemned in our own turn, don't you worry. You know, we're, we're doing plenty of horrible things to people today, I'm sure, and certainly to the planet, which other people will, will condemn us for. But, you know, we, we can't still be in love with Gibbon after all these years, unfortunately. Mm. So, as you say, you very interested in the Romans and drawn to the, the later phases of it. When you were actually an undergraduate, though, did you have it in your mind then to go with late antique, or was it still well, broadly Roman? Could, what was the point? You of couldn't the... really. They tricked the system so that you know serious study of the Roman Empire stopped with Septimius Severus, and they were falling over themselves in the Dorian University Classics Department to say how generous they were. Which, in in their uh, youth, the Roman Empire stopped with Trajan because there were no decent sources after Trajan to study the Roman Empire with. Well, poppycock to that. And there's one guy who was a bit different. 
It was David Hunt, and he did Amianus. He did a special subject Amianus. Of course, Amianus was great, really enjoyable. But I got to the end of that course and said, well, hang on, that's a bit early to, to finish off late antiquity. I read Averill Cameron's books. And then there was this, you know, uh, the last thing we did pretty much was, it's just beyond Damianus, was the closing of the temples and Ambrose of Milan, the altar of victory. And, and one thing struck me, and that was Ambrose. And I thought, when Ambrose stops Theodosius coming to church, stops him at the, in Milan because he's just ordered some massacre in Thessalonica. He's carried out a massacre in Thessalonica of people who've, who've lynched his Magister Militum. And I thought, well... That's like somebody I can relate to. That's that that that's well, somebody. Peter, yes, or Ambrose. No, no, uh, uh, Ambrose. Ambrose. <laughs> that Ambrose is like um, you know. That's time to stick two fingers up to power, isn't it? And that's you know, fight for justice. And I suppose that's my uh, da da My Catholicism coming through mm-hmm. that I'm seeing in in my study at university. Um, what. Um, you know, uh, so I can recognise in my wider values, and that was a sort of left-wing Catholicism of social justice. Um, you know, um, Saint Martin Luther King and this sort of thing. Um, Oscar Romero, and then we had uh, standing on the, you know, risking his life. The bishop. That's what bishops should be doing, in my view. They should be out there intervening when, not for the sake of power and glory, but for the sake of something that's obviously morally correct in in the face of overwhelming power without risk you know care for their lives and and uh, yeah so that that, that uh, other things ambrose did weren't very nice all often and i've been reading about them uh, myself and not always very nice or rather things he did not things he did some of the things he said rather than things he did and that's more of it but uh yeah he just suddenly I, I thought huh i want to know a bit more about these guys it's like reading about augustine i was reading um, about Chris Ostom, who was distinctly unpleasant, but for somehow it seemed to tap into a, into a, a particular seam of puritanical uh, morality that I appealed to me, and so I wanted to read more about Chris Ostom, and I like the fact that he called the Empress Jezebel and this sort of thing, which wasn't very nice, really, especially if she was on his side. So, uh, so yeah, I started to get interested in, in what's he called, Saint Severinus of Noricum, running around organising famine relief and hostages and I thought that was the sort of thing people should be doing and I don't know beyond that I started to read, then I read Peter Brown's book which I thought was nuts I thought what, what sort of a book is this where's the reasoning which one was that one the world of late antiquity oh, I just finishing go. reading the late Roman Empire I read Peter Brown um, and um, it was uh, strange but also fascinating did Jones have a big effect on you? Really? Well, it does. It gives you sort of sprains in different parts of your body, doesn't it? Because it takes about 13 days to read. You can't absorb more than a chapter at a time. Um, yeah, it had a huge impact on me. Um, I, I thought that was proper scholarship. I thought that was clarity. Uh, instead of hiding behind um, um, expertise, everything was laid out. Everything was clear. Uh, you could go and look up the reference and you'd understand how it reached his uh, all his conclusions. Um, yeah, sort of clarity that's also achieved by wiping away all previous scholarship and refusing to read it, which is a thing he did, or at least he claimed to do. Hmm. So, um, yeah. Kind of following on from that then, over your years doing late antique archaeology, 
studying late antique world. How would you say the study of late antiquity has evolved? Because as we say, it's still a relatively young discipline in its own right. Well, this goes back to that problem with the foreign professors, doesn't it? In a, in a, in a, in a world uh, of good intentions, those different academic cultures would talk to each other, would learn from each other and would grow together into something all the more worthwhile and have little local specialisms. Um, that's not the case, unfortunately. And the development of late antique studies is similar in that uh, we have grown late antique archaeology over 40 years. Well, I haven't, but it has grown. Well, um, I mean, you're the editor of late antique archaeology, so <laughs> I think you could take some responsibility. Right. Um, and what it has done in effect is has pushed back the province of textual scholars. There's occasional textual scholar like Brian Moore Perkins, because he was a textual scholar at first, even though he dug or Chris Wickham, Mark Witto, regretted a friend, um, and Avril Cameron, who are prepared to draw on archaeological evidence uh, uh, when they're just making their own remarks. But for many, it's been a case that uh, the archaeology has expanded and the textual scholars have either withdrawn to a specific sphere, or they've carried on writing their syntheses about the economy or wherever without looking at a page worth of archaeology. So I'd like to think that archaeology has completely rewritten the history of the countryside, towns, economy, technology, um, increasingly religion. Uh, which is a good, good some, role. Some good books out there on religion. There are, yeah, too. yeah. <laughs> and potentially cultural life. Um, and then it has had less impact, unfortunately, on the social structure, even though it should have a strong impact on that. Yeah, well, at the same time, uh, yeah, I think there is a, a significant number of people who don't want to learn from archaeology because they find it just too uh, slow. And they don't like the fact that archaeology changes, which is, of course, is something that we do like because uh, we like to uh, produce uh, 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 new techniques or do new projects, but they much prefer the old system where they had a bookshelf of sources, especially the Theodosian Code, and they were going to pull it down, turn to the index, get all those sources, move them around, and, and there's your thesis. And there's a, if you look at the speed in which some North American scholars of late antiquity produce their books from texts alone or from the occasional dip into epigraphy, you can see why they want to do that. It's a more economical world for them when material culture doesn't exist. They can, If they want to talk about religious violence in late antiquity, they get a few hagiographical texts. Um, they look at the laws on the temple, those <coughs> of the temples, and you've got, a te- you've got a narrative. You can feed that to your undergraduates. Um, that's fine. Of course, when you go and look at the archaeology completely different set of arguments there and um yeah um increasingly now i find this problematic even on a personal level because there are people i'm friendly with and i enjoy working with but who are clearly blanking uh, the archaeology or blanking archaeological arguments and putting texts and epigraphy at the top as high level um uh, arguments and then archaeology is a kind of 
honorary visitor, a guest, uh, who maybe between historians will make sure they don't get invited to the you know the next meeting. I don't know. It's just not working out in the way I hoped. Um, yeah, maybe we need a younger breed of iconoclast to break some, some like some demented late antique hagiographic hero <laughs> to, to break into the seminar room and to um, oblige these uh, this closeted group of uh, uh, conservative practitioners to actually look at some some archaeological distribution maps. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel that there's a kind of cultural problem in that people who've done Syriac and Greek and, and even just a bit of epigraphy, they've invested an enormous amount of time in being special, in being high priests, of um, encanting themselves into some sort of world in which they have access um, to a higher truth of subtlety and, and distinction. And archaeology doesn't require that. Archaeology is a bit like a kind of everyday religion, basically, Here's a distribution map. Look at the size of this building. Uh, the sort of arguments we use are quite simple, really, often. Extent, or the, the t- style of the day, the number of marbles, you know, um, the types of artisanal activity you can see here. They don't require a degree in philosophy. Um, and that's one reason why reading archaeological reports in different languages is actually quite easy once you've got a smattering of the language, because it's, it's not very hard. But those people have invested in, in, in you know, learning ancient languages. They feel that, oh, well, that's a bit disappointing, isn't it? Um, and they don't want to admit duffers like ourselves into the golden circle. Um, yeah, that's a bit of a pessimistic view, isn't it? I was going to say, do you, have a, do you have a positive note to bring it back <laughs> up on? Though? I mean, surely, though. Overall, though, just the very fact that our late antique archaeology has developed must be I mean, seen the, as, as a positive in itself. The, yeah, I'm not talking about everybody, but I'm thinking I want to see the narratives about late antique society written, drawing on archaeological evidence. Not exclusively, but I don't want to see late the late antique world or um, the darkening age or whatever um, written where archaeology is either not used at all or is used in a sort of illustrative capacity whereby we found a narrative based on the text and we say, oh, there's a bit of archaeology that proves it. I want people to stand back and say, well, what picture does archaeology show compared to that when we stand back? And is that compatible with the one from the literary sources? And, you know, the lesson has been for, the, for, for cities, for the countryside, for the economy, that the, the picture presented by the, the, the literary sources or the legal sources was absolute garbage. Was garbage. Shout it from the mountain tops, and people wrote nice books published by Oxford University Press in which this garbage was 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 um, dished out. And we are saying, hang on, we've got to change all that. We've got some great new sources, especially from recent projects in the East Mediterranean, which prevent, present a substantially different view of society and give us a chance, let us in, and, and don't be sniffy. You know, we're we're not saying abolish texts. What we're saying is let texts and archaeologists sit down and work out history as a third space, not as belonging to one discipline or the other. Like a Venn diagram. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Right, there we go. That's a long answer. <laughs> I mean, it's annoying when you see the amount of money that's put into archaeology and field projects. And then when you look at the books that are selling on Amazon.com and you think, what's the contribution of archaeology being to those narratives? 
And that's my main problem in archaeology, that I'm, I want archaeology to be meaningful. In fact, for my whole career, what I've been aiming at is to do archaeology that's meaningful. I'm not satisfied with archaeology as escapism or archaeology as gardening without plants, as some sort of macho activity that you do archaeology and you can you throw it all in the spoil heap and you've done archaeology like you went doing windsurfing or whatever. Um, it's got to be meaningful. It's got to contribute to the study of human behaviour. You want it to be a scientific activity. Even a scholarly activity. I'm not convinced it's a scholarly activity. A lot of time it's about getting a tan, uh, finding a a new partner, um, having a Peroni sitting on a column, and, um, yeah, finding stuff. I mean, I can understand the fun in that, but I I think we need to move beyond that at university level. Because otherwise, how come somebody who's, who's written a book on late antiquity in every... Every second uh, second Tuesday uh, over three years, it, with no research grant, is is getting read, and we're not. I mean, why is Nixie getting read, uh, and why are people not listening to us? And I, I've, unfortunately, I've got this feeling that it's going to stay that way. That our great narratives of progress are actually going to be as dead as as the European Community in a few years. Uh, we need to make things happen, um, and we're not making things happen at the moment. Uh, we've come to, kind, of, kind, of, kind of got stuck so we, don't, we need a new generation as I said of eager iconoclasts to get over some of those walls well it's not just about iconoclasts to make friends with people to somehow persuade them that archaeology matters that we can write the story of late antiquity just as we can write the story of the Mesolithic and that's just as important to use archaeology for this period as it is for proto-history, or, you know, we've got something positive to say. One of the things I was going to bring up, though, was the hopefully near future you're going to go back to writing up the Ostia I am, excavations. Yeah. But the Ostia excavations, one of the interesting things there was the approach to that was looking at surface archaeology, not actually really digging down. But that was the intention. The when, when I, I, the I didn't get those bits of the site, you see. Axel Gearing got all those bits which had a surface. So he got the paving, which is what I was expecting to study, and I got the remains of Roman buildings with most of the surfaces tickled away. So that was my approach at Sagalassos, surface archaeology. And so instead what we went for in Ostia was um, large-scale cleaning of existing excavation and then strategic excavation of uh, key deposits, so large scale recording, then key, key, not keyhole excavation, but selective excavation to support that. So we ended up on a different kind of surface. It wasn't surface archaeology, more like interface archaeology, where we've realised the late antique layers were very thin and very complicated. Um, and we, our job was to restudy those uh, and try and date them correctly, and which we did achieve. Um, did that? Or does that look like it's changed the picture of late antique Ostia significantly? Well, it, well, it will do because, um, as the head of the uh, superintendents has said at the time, but we thought those mosaics were first century mosaics. Um, in what Italian archaeology, what its problem is, is that um, the understanding one has of the urban archaeology is based often on typology. It's based on, um, not on stratigraphic observation and dated finds. So also there's quite a poor understanding of phasing, so things may be rebuilt a number of times. And 
you know, oh, you, they've missed it. So Pensa Benes commanded on a survey of the area, or Heres, these people have been looking at walls, oh yeah, smells like 2nd century AD to me, and down it goes on paper um, because of the type of brick or, you know, I, but that isn't actually been tied to any stratigraphic analysis, so we've tied it to stratigraphic analysis. Now that begs the question whether the rest of uh, late antique Italy is also full of 4th century repairs and 5th century repairs that nobody can see um, because they're doing the wrong type of archaeology or they've restored things to death, uh, removing all of the later changes. Um, now I don't know if that's true or not. We need to do further field work. My feeling is that some of it's true. Uh, but also that Austria is a busier place. Austria and Rome are much busier places than the rest of Italy. Um, it's like a different region entirely. I guess the general thing you could say, though, in terms of how late antique archaeology and the study of the late antique world has evolved over the last, say, 20 years, is the picture that now emerges of a, is of a much more vibrant and much more dynamic society than we traditionally well, if thought. We... I mean, obviously, if you go back, you're talking about the Dark Ages, quote-unquote, and decline and fall, etc. We have increasingly now moved away from those narratives. I mean, as you say, like you do get books that still come out, The Darkening Age, for example, which very, 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 very problematic and just wrong in many places. But anyway, do you, the overall impression, though, would you say that has emerged, at least in the scholarly field, is that the late antique world is, as I say, there's a lot more going on there. Well, we can go, we can thought. go for we, what we've got is two stories. We've got a story of increasing prosperity and we've got a story of decline. And those two stories occur in different places at different times. So I think nobody's in any doubt that the East Mediterranean in AD 500 was at its most prosperous for all of antiquity. So, basically, move over Pericles, move over Ptolemy's Alexander, move over Julius Caesar. The, the uh, East Mediterranean of Anastasius, that's the place to be. That's your greatest achievement uh, in classical antiquity. There's the richness of the countryside, of the development of the towns. And it's only, really, um, cultural bias which is preventing us from recognising that. Uh, any objective measure of... Of 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 of, of uh, economic and cultural development would say that, as Brian Moore Perkins to me said to me, you only have to look at the pictures in Chilenko's survey of the Syrian villages to realise that Gibbon was wrong, completely wrong, uh, not just little, not the train on the wrong platform, but the wrong station. What was not were not right. Um, in the West, however, it's much more problematic. In up to four hundred, things are going fine. Um, things are going. I would go as far as four hundred, even four thirty in some places. Shh, don't tell everybody that. Um, but then it goes wrong, and in some places it goes wrong earlier. But it goes wrong earlier in the east as well. People get over it. Um, so, you know, but this mixture of scenarios allows people who have different axes to grind to choose the the facts which support their case. Um, which is very bad, because uh, they ought to be able to cope with the fact that the empire's pretty big. And even going way back, there was regions which were doing well or doing less well, according to different periods of time. 
So if we get into the world of politics, away from uh, economic prosperity or settlement density or all those sort of objective things that archaeologists standing on Montes Testaccio would like to say, talk about, then you have to ask uh, more complex questions. But my book will solve some of those problems. I was going to say that as well. I was going to say that round to Because I, I try to address questions of citizenship and the quality of amenity which ordinary people experience in a city to put alongside uh, all of these texts which talk about say organizational difficulties organizational rearrangements and it's very clear from my work on the amenity that um, the sixth century city in the east was i mean i'm going to say it it was the best place to live yes Scythopolis or apamea when you're sitting in the street the quality of public space is the same as those in the private houses of the wealthy. I mean, give me a civilization which has achieved that. If you go, you're in Pompeii, there we were with the guys in, in, in February, sitting on the pavement in Pompeii. You're sitting on a sidewalk. Oh, it's okay, it's a nice sidewalk, the paving's quite nice, but it's still the sidewalk. It's some, some piece of crumbling tuff. And you're on a mortar pavement, uh, mortar to side, uh, but your bum's on a, a mortar floor and then you can occasionally look through um, the walls of the street and you'll see a great big door and, and there'll be some nice gardens behind so some rich guy's pad in Scythopolis you're in a Sigma Plaza or the the Byzantine Agora with Opus Sectile um, with street lighting um, with um, game boards provided by the Pater um, with fountains and, and so on is miles better. It's much more comfortable. You've got a, a water clock, ding dong, a bit like in a, you know, in a in the Swiss style water clocks with little doors which open. Um, you've got a lot of money being spent on public space. It's really luxurious. So I reckon, from my study of the East Mediterranean city, that that's the most civilized uh, time in antiquity. Uh, in terms of the the city, so now that gives us a second argument to stick alongside sort of economic prosperity. That the political prosperity of the people at the bottom uh, was better in late antiquity than it was earlier. Pericles went home on a dirt track with sewage going. It might be a straight dirt dirt track. In fact, in Athens it wasn't even straight. But Greek cities they didn't have sewers. The filth ran down the middle of the road. That's not the case in, in the 6th century eastern city with a proper sidewalk as well as proper paving and as well as a proper portico. Uh, it's really a different different world. So Athens, Pompeii, nothing on Scythopolis in the no, nothing 5th on century? Them. Nothing on them. Not at all. Um, we still have traffic management, uh, regulated parking, ride on, go, drive on the right. I can prove all these things. Uh, that regulation, it's regulation which is for the benefit of the citizen. Um, there was a story in Palladius about a... You know, this caused real problems for Christianity. You know, Christianity was supposed to make your life better. But Palladius records a story where this beggar who's been taken in by a, a Christian gentleman and fed at home, he loses his temper and says, I'm sick of you, I want to go back to the agora with some, some crowd and some meat. You know, sitting in the agora begging, he's getting a better time than he is in some somebody's home, uh, and that's that's quite impressive as a sort of 
political legacy of the city. It's nothing to do with Christianity there. It's to do with the survival of the city. Do you think there's a lesson there for our own times? Well, our times, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. The only time you get good quality urban infrastructure on that scale is when you're inside a shopping mall and you haven't got a right to sit down unless you buy something. Um, In terms of the street, we have jumbled pavements, which are of heterogeneous materials. Um, We have... um, uh, really nowhere to go just to hang out in the north of Europe, well, in, in Britain at least. Uh, yeah, I mean, France has got a better urban infrastructure. Just try rolling your suitcase to the station in France and you'll have a much better time than you do in Britain. Um, yeah, I think there's lots of lessons. I think we've lost uh, an important uh, sense of amenity in an urban commonwealth which we had in the early 20th century. You know, when... Okay, there wasn't much money for the poor, but there were decent municipal toilets. There was a special town hall there, gleaming away. There was investment going on in in sewers and so on. That's uh, an ideal of civilization, of a low-level... Well, they're not rights, they're benefits, really, but they're the sort of thing which allows you to plan, to invest... um, so you know where to park, you know how long you can have this particular spot for your store, or you know who's going to, somebody's going to collect the rubbish. These are parts of a civilization, not simply um, going to vote. Um, but the, 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 in the, and late antiquity had that, but it still did have means of popular participation as well, of making your voice heard. Um, so from, on my basis, the, yeah... The, Apameus, Githopolis, Gaza in the sixth, early 6th century. These are great places to live. So if you could jump in the time machine and go back in time to live somewhere, that's where you'd go? Well, it does agree, involve a degree of self-deception. It has to be true, but then that's always the case, isn't it? But yeah, I'm increasingly feeling like that, yeah. Yeah, that if I am going to be doing total recall like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'm going to turn on Gaza 8500. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. I mean, it's a long way from Canterbury and it's a long way from the preoccupations of Roman archaeologists who'll be listening to your podcast. But, yeah, my advice to them would be to, uh, before you next go to track, um, get yourself in a plane and get dropped off uh, in Petra and walk back. And you might change your mind about the whole nature of the Roman Empire and also the nature of... Um, the Roman city and, and what it can do for you, really. Um, that's a bit naughty because I'm now moving away from relativism and I am saying that actually there's parts of the Roman Empire which are a jolly good thing, which always annoys archaeologists, or, or rather, archaeologists of our own time. Uh, I'm not going to go so far as to say that central heating is a wonderful contribution to civilization, but I do think that having uh, rubbish collection and sewers that work uh, it keeps people free of disease and being able to sit down out of the rain uh, all of these things uh, with your mates uh, these matter so uh, yeah often there are things that you don't think about until they're broken so nobody cares about sewage pipes until it's going across your garden do they and then it's terrible it's the end of the world uh, but yeah in late antiquity a lot of things which we take for granted were very well taken care of just to finish off then, who's your favourite late Roman emperor from Constantine onwards? Oh, actually, that's the point. A better question. Where does late antiquity start? 
Well, I think it starts with Diocletian, but increasingly I've been proved wrong, notably Ostia, because quite a lot of our late antique renovation is starting in the third quarter of the third century and not in the... So Aurelian? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Which is not what I expected. And I suspect there's a number of sites in the west of Europe, Complutum, uh, and also in Britain, in Caistor and or, or in Exeter, where we've pushed the chronology forward to fit Diocletian and Constantine when actually it's the, the last part of the 3rd century, the sort of immediately prior to that. So, okay. yeah, the 3rd quarter of the 3rd century. So that's your, where does it start? I mean, favourite Roman emperors, you want to go? Well, I mean, I, I, normally I would say Anastasius. Um, well, but if we were to talk objectively, I mean, how, how am I, when I learn more about these guys... I have to confess that the more I know about Constantine, he's growing on me. Really? Yeah, yeah. Not I think, really. I think he's been, uh, not for the uh, reason you think, but I think that um, people really underestimate the degree to which he tried to reconcile having a stable family life with the realities of imperial power, and that this really messed him up. Um, he wanted it to be happy families, and it, it couldn't be happy families because he was the emperor. I mean, he could have his son executed. Well, this is all, well, yeah, but <laughs> exactly. But when you dig into these matters, and then uh, and nobody, uh, he, his sons or the sons of this woman, there wasn't any desire to undo that damnatio. Nobody had a word against it. Well, we just don't have any sources to know exactly what happened. We only have a couple of sources, um, so there's no suspicion from the surrounding literature that this was. Um, you know, seen as particularly unjust. Something happened. We don't know what exactly. Maybe we did. We, th- we think we think there was. A, you know, we've got the official version, but something clearly went badly wrong. But then, when he's splitting up the empire there, and who? What was the idea there? He was trying to give tiny little pieces of the empire to his to the family of his uh, father, basically his father's first family. And of course, his sons would have none of that. Or the people around his sons—they they killed them. Uh, they weren't going to have anybody but the sons of Constantine. But Constantine's idea was that we can all be happy families, and we can all—you can have Britain, and I'll have Pannonia, and where it's all going to be okay. Uh, to do that—that's extreme. I don't know any emperor. There is no emperor who does that. So you can see there's clearly a conflicted personality here. Somebody who's trying to do the right thing by his father's family and. You know, it goes horribly wrong. Clearly, Constantine was very successful at killing people on a large scale. Well, I mean, he was a big uh, general, and if you're uh, voting for Roman emperors, unfortunately, you're not voting for shepherds and sheep. Uh, you're voting for people who can win battles. That's why the Roman emperor, and he was good at that. He was a dashing prick. To get out of the palace in Nicomedia and got on a horse and managed to end up in Bologna uh, uh, through subterfuge. I mean. These are the, that, that is a hero story. That is, if you're looking for heroes, that is. Uh, you know, but you know. There um, you go. When you write your first fiction book, say in late antiquity, that's a, it's a story for you. Well, I've already written a story about it, actually. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 whether it'll get published or not. But yeah, of course, uh, if you were sitting on the German side of the fence, Constantine might not have been your best friend. And, and there are any number of people who were rather uh, upset about some of the things he did. But, yeah, uh, don't underestimate Constantine. He's clearly somebody who is um, 
outstanding uh, character of the I was going to say, I don't think we can underestimate him in terms of what he's... No, but in t- even in terms of his morality, there may be more about him than you can imagine. Oh, um, well, there you go. That's uh... So, yeah, I mean, Justinian, the more I know about him, the less I like him. Even though I did start out liking him a lot, because, you know, what schoolboy doesn't like to hear about the reconquest of the Roman West? Yeah, but the more I hear about him, the more it goes down in my estimation, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there we go. I seem to be uh, destined to uh, to have unpopular opinions. And then, just to finish then, where does late antiquity end? Well, it does end in Britain rather more sharply than some people would like. Uh, I know we can carry on saying it goes on till 600, but uh, if you're used to doing East Mediterranean archaeology... Um, you know, I'm struggling to keep it in the book after 400. I mean, maybe I'll give a footnote or two to it. I mean, like, okay, but I'm different areas of the empire. And in the east, hours or whatever. Yeah, exactly. But where, does, where do we say the late antiquity ends? Like, what's the... Because obviously the start of the Roman Empire can be different for well, different areas. Well, the last century of Christians... Uh, the last century of classical civilization is really the Umayyads. So, 750. Uh, you can't draw any kind of... Uh, proper boundary in, in the Near East when the Islam uh, when Islam arrives. It's just not there. Um, however, as a result of my book, I have to confess that I now believe that the centre of Constantinople preserved quite a lot of the ancient city throughout the Middle Ages. Now, not everywhere, but, you know, in its, its public squares, it had statues in 1204, which Constantine put there. And when the Crusaders got in there, um, there was still an honorific column to throw the emperor off to his death in one of the fora. So, you know, um, I think that we will find that in Rome and Constantinople, a lot of the look of the 5th to 6th century city survived uh, until you know, until the later Middle Ages, really, until you know, sort of until it was demolished to build something else. Um, I think that's the way it's going. Um, you know, I'm not saying every building did, but if you were Anglo-Saxon princeling or some sort of, and you came to visit the Pope, you would feel like you're in the ancient world. And if you went into Constantinople, in the heart of Constantinople, oh, you, you would be gobsmacked by what you saw. Um, so I feel like the level of regulation and the level of uh, um, urban architect uh, of preservation and maintenance was very, very high in Constantinople. Higher than I thought. I, I believed in rupture, and now increasingly I'm believing that the, the Constantinople is an exceptional city where exceptional things survive. So, yeah. Um, I hope that answers your question. Oh, it's all good. Just to draw it to a close, do you have anything coming up on the horizon that you want to advertise? There advertise. Are, do we have any more? Are there any more late antique archaeology conferences in the work at the moment? Or well, I mean, pause? I was planning to do technology because I thought last time we did technology, uh, it didn't uh, work out uh, as well as I hoped. Um, we didn't get a broad enough coverage of of of, of subjects. So uh, there is a. Yeah, that was the highest selling book of the LAA series for some reason uh, a lot of people liked it but I feel that 
um, it could be broader so that's possibly for next year um, my book is so long that I kind of feel like I'm going to die at the end of it that that was just <laughs> my contribution and a full stop is required and that somehow I should be transported somewhere else uh, you're raised up to the heavens I don't know yeah but, well down to the depths to pay <laughs> uh, to pay for my sins yeah um I mean, I've got plans, but yeah, I'm pretty tired. I could just do with a blood transfusion of somebody's <laughs> younger genes in order to carry out my next uh, scheme. Okay, I'm um, slightly further away from you now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I've got to finish Ostia, haven't I? And then there's the... Well, I'm desperate to get the visualisation of Late Antique City out, um, but that's um doesn't just depend upon me. It's unfortunately it's the nature of collaboration. You can't control everything that, that goes on. But there's a lot in the pipeline. Nothing really too much in the pipe, uh, on the horizon at the moment, in the immediate horizon. But there's a lot in the pipeline. And yeah, you don't. I, I usually say as well if people want to find you online, but you don't really use Twitter or anything like that. So no, I do. Maybe. I do own the Twitter address late antiquity. <laughs> That's pretty good. Isn't you probably it? sell. You probably sell that somewhere, <laughs> to be honest. And or there's somebody out if, there. I that think I did have it. a YouTube channel lately. That was my great plan, but. Uh, yeah, I never got round to doing anything with it because yeah. you, you end up teaching, don't you? So, yeah. but people can contact you just via chucking your name into Google, finding you on they the can. That's right, website. Yeah. Okay, right. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you've got, got to give me feedback now. About, <laughs> you should have made signs like. Sh- Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.